You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon. Now, we've made it to just about the halfway point of our journey and of this podcast. I hope the last few episodes have been really useful to you, pointing you towards deeper, more impactful allyship and ultimately anti-racism. In the last couple of episodes, we made the case for sympathy for the Black community as an important part of your response to racial injustice, and then shun a light on why you can't stop there. Our next step is empathy, and I will admit I've been looking forward to these two episodes in particular because it was seeing the displays of empathy from white friends, colleagues, and acquaintances in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor that was a big part of why I put this journey together in the first place. The murder of Ahmaud Arbery in February, though mostly unknown until May, signaled the start of a national awakening on race that immediately felt different. Maybe it was the pandemic and being shut in our home for over two months at that point. Maybe it was the fact that Ahmad was jogging through his neighborhood, a pastime that is popular with all kinds of Americans and seems to have a special place in the hearts of white Americans. But large groups of the country sat up and took notice of this one. Then came the sympathy. We saw post after post with the hashtag run with Ahmad as people of all races started jogging in solidarity. And then came the news of Breonna Taylor murdered in her bed in March during a botched police raid in Louisville, Kentucky, while they were in pursuit of a man who did not even live at that residence. Then at the end of May came the double gut punch of George Floyd and the fiasco between Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, whose encounter was felt and heard around the world. And white America saw up close what black America has known forever that white people can and will call the police on us with intent to do harm, and that if we're not careful, what happened to George Floyd could easily have happened to Christian Cooper if Amy Cooper's mission had been successful. Something pretty unexpected happened next, though. Non-Black people, and especially white people who had long benefited from a society committed to white supremacy, finally confronted the possibility that maybe, just maybe, the Black people in their lives, on their social media feeds, and in the news, were actually telling the truth. Racism and anti-Blackness was indeed a rot at the core of American society, and it was actually killing us. I felt and saw a watching white world dig beyond sympathy, and many reached empathy. They started to talk about what it must feel like to be Black in America. Friends would ask me how I could bear raising my son, Langston, here, and how they could help. What could they do? Now, as a Black person who knows just how flaky this country can be when it comes to righting its racial wrongs, I tried not to get too hopeful, but you almost couldn't help it. Something really did feel different this time. So today, I want to zero in on empathy 
because I think it's a critical stop on the journey to ensuring that any plans that we make to address racism going forward are grounded on a shared understanding of our common humanity. Anti-Black racism is not a Black people problem. It is a white supremacy problem. And until non-Black and especially white people see the problem as theirs to solve, we won't be able to make progress. Where sympathy means to share in the sorrow of another, empathy is to actually try to feel that sorrow as if it were your own, while still being conscious of the fact that this is only a thought experiment for you, while it is a lived experience for others. You still know that you have your own shoes that you walk in, but you mentally or emotionally envision what it would be like to walk in the shoes of another. It allows us to get proximate to those who may be very different from us. So today, I invited two friends of mine who I think embody racial empathy in ways that I think will be inspiring and instructional to others looking to follow suit. Faye has one of the best worded bios that you'll read, an ethical behavior change and human-centered design expert. She founded Deliberate Discourse in 2015 in response to the ongoing violence against Black people in America. Deliberate Discourse is an intentional guided experience that allows people, and especially non-Black people, to engage in deep conversation about racism in America. Born in South Africa and raised in Silicon Valley, she has a unique frame on race and embodies doing the work in a way that few white allies truly do. Shylin Simmons is a successful tech serial entrepreneur with experience as an exec at some of the biggest brands in tech and media from Google to Amazon to Time Warner and AOL and more. She is the CEO and co-founder of Looky Lou and co-founder of Orange Bridge Ventures. But most relevant to our discussion today is her own personal journey as an outspoken advocate and ally for the Black community in her professional and her personal life. Faye and Shailen, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you both here. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having us. Feeling great. Thank you so much. Amazing. So I really was delighted that you guys both accepted the invite to come to the podcast because I think you represent a different and distinct but truly active and engaged allyship that we don't always see in the world. And I want to unpack how you got here, specifically focused on empathy. Now, since this is a podcast, the people can't see you. So I will start by telling our listeners that Faye is a white woman and Shailen is an Asian woman. I'm sharing this for two reasons. One, because we need to normalize talking about and acknowledging race, because race in America shapes both our perspectives and our experiences. And two, because I want you to know that there is no single profile or type of person who can be active in the fight for racial justice. So Faye, I'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started your work advancing racial justice in our country? What led you to that moment? Thanks so much, Kamala. The moment for me where active participation in a more organized fashion, I would say that I've always been a person who's been quite vocal about justice issues. I worked on human rights issues and Africa policy and human rights research. So fighting for justice has always been a big part of my career and my personal passions but really engaging in structural racism in the United States came to the forefront for me right after the Michael Brown verdict. You mentioned a lot of the history in the most recent uprisings and people coming to a greater awareness, particularly folks from the white community having increased awareness of the reality that 
a lot of Black Americans have been living with for a long time when it comes to police violence. But I live in Oakland. And one of my favorite things about Oakland as a city is that it's really a city that lives its passion on its sleeve. And after the Michael Brown verdict on November 24th, 2014, people were pouring out of their homes to take to the streets, to march onto the freeways, to really express their shock and their disappointment that the justice system had decided there would be no charges on the police officers who killed Michael Brown. I think at that point, for a lot of folks, even if it has been sort of an unfair or maybe an unreasonable perspective, there was this idea that our justice system was based on trusting the justice system, that the court system was to protect people, that I think that that's an illusion of meritocracy that I think a lot of white people have held for a long time, that like we have courts and as long as we get to the court system and then we'll trust our peers, that the right thing will be done. And I think a lot of people were holding their breath, thinking this is such a clear, tragic murder that obviously the system will protect us here and we'll see the police officer charged with crimes here and that there would be justice done. And I think a lot of people were hoping, not that there was a lot of evidence to say that there was strength, but in that moment, I think it was an awareness of like, oh, the systems are not actually set up for a lot of people to actually create the justice and we can't actually rely on them. And it was in those moments that we saw a lot of discourse online. There was a heightened fervor for conversation. And a lot of white people, quite frankly, acting shocked, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is so bad. And a lot of my friends, people of color were saying like, welcome to the party. Where have you been? Have you not been watching the news? If you just pay attention, slightly take your blinders off. This has been the reality for a long time. Read the new Jim Crow. You sort of name the kind of perspectives. And there was such a fever pitch of emotion, which one of the things you speak to, Kamala, that emotions aren't necessarily the thing that drives action. But it was a fever pitch for emotion. So I said, I posted something using a Google Doc saying, hey, who wants to get together for dinner? Like I'll gather people, I'll create a space for us to have a conversation about what's happening so that we can really hear each other out and deepen our understanding, which gets that point of like, how do we get from sympathy to really better understanding? And that was the sort of organic start of deliberate discourse. I posted something, 700 people from around the country said, yes, I'm available on Tuesday or Wednesday and I don't eat fish. And all of a sudden I had a commitment I needed to keep. And so over the next three months, I flew all over the country to gather strangers and neighbors I'd never met before to have a conversation specifically about police violence. And it was an opportunity for me to dive into my own education on the topic and my own facilitation skills to really gather people. And we're still doing it five years later. I remember feeling it in my body, that very visceral response that I need to do something. I need to lean into my bravery, step past my uncomfortableness. I pinged a few friends of mine, people of color being like, I don't know if I should do this as a white person. I don't know if it's my space. Once I screw it up and a dear friend of mine, Stephanie, that I used to work with, a Black woman, she said, oh, you will for sure screw it up, but you should do it anyway, because the work needs to be done and we need more white people to do it. So please just get going and stop questioning yourself about it being perfect. So that was sort of stepping into this work. Yeah, I I love that. And having attended a number of deliberate discourses, it really is such an amazing pathway and roadmap for many people to put on that empathetic lens and really think about where they sit in the conversation. Now, Shailen, you and I have also talked a bit about your journey and your story. And I'll share with the audience that we've worked together before. And 
I definitely remember you being one of the more outspoken leaders that we had, who one reached out to me and the few other Black and Latinx people that were on our team, and also coming to know you subsequently and know how much you've spoken up in your own professional life to support Black colleagues and to more broadly support a greater sense of racial equity in the country. But I know you have a very personal and unique story of sort of how you came to do that as an Asian woman in this country. So can you talk a little bit about what that journey looked like for you? Sure. I think a lot of folks probably better know me as a a Asian woman immigrant founder. And so a lot of the stories about who I am as an executive has been tied to basically me being Asian and being an immigrant or being a woman. And one of the things that people didn't really know about me was what was my background growing up? I think a lot of folks looked at my name and said Shailene Simmons and thought that Simmons was basically my husband's last name. But in fact, actually, I did immigrate here as a child from Taiwan and my parents divorced. And so my mother subsequently fell in love and married an African-American man who adopted me and became my father. And so I was raised by a black man in America who was also a police officer, an LAPD police officer. So when people think that Simmons is my last name, it's my husband's name. It's actually not. It's actually my father's name. And so I feel like even my name embodies a little bit of my own experience of being Asian, as well as having a step-parent who is American as well. I grew up knowing a lot more about Black history than Asian contributions to American history. Literally, I got told about how Tuskegee Airmen got experimented on and what the plight of Vietnam vets were for African-American vets. And so I always just never really quite thought about the difference between myself and my father until basically my dad became an entrepreneur. And my parents started the business together. He was an LAPD police officer. He started a security business. And oftentimes he would do business by phone. And this is back in the days before we actually had TSA. Every airline had their own security. They scanned you know, the luggage that went into the airplane and the, into the luggage hole with a security agency of their own. And so my father was bidding for those contracts. And so he often spoke to people by phone and had deals going, and then they met him in person. And my dad is an amazingly handsome guy, but he is strong and he is big and he is very, very dark. And so I think the first thing that came out of some of the you know, partners, math was like, I didn't know you're black. You don't sound black. And the first thing I thought was, what does it mean to sound black? He sounds like dad. He sounds professional on the phone, off the phone. He sounds like a business person. And so I started to see sort of the difference in how they were treating him in terms of how business was being done. It really made me a little bit afraid of being an entrepreneur. And actually took me a very long time to decide to be an entrepreneur because I always had this nagging fear of being discriminated against as a business person because I, that was what I grew up seeing. I worried about, do I sound too Asian? Do I sound too other? When I speak to people on the phone, do they know they're dealing with a person of color? Will they change their minds if they know that they're dealing with a person of color? And that was the impression I was left with, that there was not a lot of equity. In fact, that there was a lot of difference in terms of how people treated us when they see him or they didn't see him, for example. And so I grew up really seeing discrimination against my father and the pain that it brought to both my parents. Yeah, that's such a powerful and unique story because I think that having that experience of being able to see 
what Black Americans in this country live with in a very personal way and having it sort of unfold in your home definitely gives you maybe a little bit of a head start, if you will, on how to really think about empathy. So so when some of the bigger stories hit the news cycle, it's not just a faraway abstract thing that you can't picture. There is something a little bit closer. But I think what I hear in both of your stories is, you know, you both were raised in homes and, and grew up with sort of your own innate sense that everyone needs to be treated equally. Everyone is entitled to a certain amount of dignity and respect. But then, you know, the Some of those principles, I believe, are tacitly held by many people, but they don't always get explicitly expressed in the form of action, in the form of any sort of behavior or any sort of just general way in which they live their lives. And so in both of your stories, though, you guys went from a more sort of tacit commitment to equality and justice and freedom and all of the things that we espouse as Americans to a more sort of outspoken level of allyship and being vocal around issues that affect the Black community. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about the role that you feel like empathy played in that and how empathy as an emotional response can really help you to be bolder and more active on issues of race. I'll start with you, Faye. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It brings to mind one of the questions that we talk about at our dinners is like whether or not race was a constant or taboo topic in your family. And I think we could always talk about that question about what do we learn from what we see done versus what is communicated. But when I think about empathy specifically for me, I think the thing I saw that actually helped bridge it for a lot of people, folks who really started getting engaged with deliberate discourse, was the idea of being a mother. So Shailen, you were talking a little bit about experience of being an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur for a while. And as a woman, I experienced a lot of discrimination, but not the kind of discrimination that people experience where people of color were in that same position. And so when it came to a lot of the police shootings we've been seeing, I found that a lot of white women, particularly women who are mothers, had a very visceral response to the idea of imagining that their child could not come home or their child may be shot, may be innocent, may be doing things. I think that emotion and the emotions expressed of the parents and the mothers of Black men, women, children, a lot of these individuals have been thought of actually are minors or children, really struck home for people. And it sort of hit the element of like, and parents especially can, I'm not a parent, and so maybe Kamala, you can speak to this more, but you know, your your child might not be perfect and you might have to put them on timeout, your child's quite young, but there might be moments where you know that your kid is doing something that isn't perfect, but under no circumstance would it be okay or justifiable for the reaction to them to be death, like unjustified murder? So I think having that kind of empathy and imagining being in those shoes has really allowed people to help do the bridge into having the conversation about what is the life like of people of color in the United States, particularly Black folks that maybe I haven't imagined. And deliberate discourse really anchors on sharing stories and sharing perspectives We tell people not to talk about data, no quoting the New York Times. We really try and make sure it's not an intellectual exercise. So people get to have the visceral experience of sitting with their emotions of thinking like, wow, this would be such a different reality. And we find that that's really like the thing that allows people to bridge into thinking about having more action in their lives. I totally agree with that, Faye. I I mean, I think when I consider the role of emotions, we have to be careful to walk this line of emotions are not action but emotions are also not meaningless. Emotions are 
can be really powerful motivators for action and remind us of sort of our shared humanity. And I think pointing out sometimes the the pathway that parenthood can provide for some people is really powerful because it's not a universal experience, but it is an experience that a lot of people can relate to. You know, once you have a child, it does shift your frame in certain powerful ways. And one of the things that I've heard as people have expressed empathy to me is, you know, looking at my son, I have a three-year-old black boy that's going to grow to be a black man. And judging by the people in his family, probably not a small Black man. And that's terrifying. So to think about what it will mean for him to walk through the world and wondering what is the age at which he will go from being cute to being a threat to someone, that's something that as I've communicated with some of my friends who are parents, who are non-Black, that does seem to be something that's able to kind of pierce the veil a little bit. And and when I think about the transition or the importance rather of empathy, I think it really is that transition from just being sad about it kind of from a distance, from an emotional distance to actually being pained by it yourself. I think we can describe it as a combined emotional plus rational understanding of the impact of racism in the lives of Black people. And this is something that can just seem to be lacking for so many non-Black people. And I can say as a Black person who's lived through countless news cycles about people who look like me and who look like people in my family being killed without either remorse or any legal action, Seeing non-Black people seemingly able to just carry on as if nothing is happening can be really gut-wrenching. So I'm curious, why do you think so many people seem to have trouble accessing what I would consider basic empathy for the Black community when it comes to racism? Shailen? I think this has everything to do with the fact that there there seems to be sort of a, a disconnect overall in the United States that if you are not of the social economic class and if you don't understand what it means to live in an urban city or if you don't understand what it's like to live in California versus New York, then they'd live a completely different lifestyle. We are completely polarized as a country so that everybody seems to be other. And I think that discussion about understanding and having empathy for the fact that this individual was somebody's son. George Floyd was somebody's father, you know, and Breonna Taylor was somebody's daughter and sister. If they really understood it as that, exactly that it's not a geographic sort of liberal versus conservative or geographic location of people who are city people versus rural people and really connect on that fundamental level that we are all human beings, we are all brothers and sisters and friends of each other, then it makes a lot more sense to people. When people ask, why are you feeling so much? People who don't know my background. I was like, I grew up waiting for my father to come home. It's not enough that he's a police officer and he may not come home because he may get shot, but he's a black man and a big black guy who is coming home from downtown LA. And if he stopped for something, he may get killed because randomly a fellow police officer from a different district could kill him. I have a stepbrother who went to the military and is an amazing young man. He could be stopped anywhere. And so, yeah, I feel it viscerally. And I think that if people understood that these are individuals who are people's parents and sisters and, you know, husbands, this is a much easier thing to understand because we all have that understanding. But we are so cast into tribes now that we think that people can't have a Venn diagram 
of what it means to be part of a tribe, that we are all sort of so polarized that we can't be part of each other's tribe or Venn diagram together at all, which is so strange to me because we're not just all one thing. You're so right. I mean, that's where intersectional identities come in. You know, I'm not just a Black woman. I'm not just a woman. I'm not just a mother. I'm not just a prof- I'm all of those things at once. And there are so many overlapping areas of identity and so many overlapping commonalities that we have if we're able to like see and connect to that. But sometimes we are, as you said, just so divided. And as I was preparing for this conversation, I read a lot about the connection between empathy and making progress on racial justice. Empathy is a really key ingredient when it comes to addressing racism. And the absence of it is not, to your point, it's not a left or right political issue. I think liberals and progressives can suffer the same lack of empathy and and deep understanding for the Black community that they can so easily recognize in conservatives. I was doing a little bit of research, and at a New York City town hall in 1964, James Baldwin expressed his frustration with white liberals who think that you're pushing too hard when you rock the boat, who think you are bitter when you are vehement, who have a set of attitudes so deep they're almost unconscious, and which blind them to the fact that in talking to a Black man, they are speaking to another man like themselves. I think this, exactly to your point, Shailen, is really at the heart of it. Many white people, left or right, just don't often see Black people as their equals. So even those who feel that they are in favor of racial equity don't realize that they may still harbor ideas of our inferiority and their superiority. And these ideas about Black people permeate the air that we breathe and the images that we consume spreading to drive anti-Black sentiment amongst Asian, Latinx, white, and even Black people themselves. And I think about this a lot when I think about something like Hollywood. So Hollywood is the, the number one purveyor of ideas and images in our society. It's where we get so much of our cues about who does or who doesn't belong, who is or isn't a certain way. For a lot of us, that's how we sort of understand the world. And and those images are so powerful. And I think we have to remember that Hollywood is a self-described group of liberals and social progressives. Yet we're dealing with still very limited recognition for and very limited inclusion of Black actors. We're faced with one-dimensional Black characters and nearly no Black executives have the power to greenlight a television show or a movie. And this is still true in 2020, as it was when Hollywood first began. I think that those types of things make it very hard for people to develop what should be a human instinct, empathy for Black people, because they really don't see them included in the frame. It's still very rare that we get the type of truly multidimensional, truly 360 pictures of Black people in all of their triumph and tragedy and joy and and hope and love and pain. And so I want to go back to deliberate discourse a little bit, because I think that the way that you facilitate that discussion really does give people a roadmap to starting to take some of those blinders off, starting to set down some of the divisions, if you will, and the polarization to level the playing field and to think about how we are all in it together in in a way that's meaningful. So I'm wondering if you can take our audience who hasn't been through it, just through a little bit of the thinking of how you do this and what this work has taught you about how we can draw empathy out of others. Yeah, thank you, Kamala. I think your point about media is so important. 
And actually, one of the questions that we guide people through is actually about representation. And when people see themselves or last saw themselves represented in media. So just to give our listeners a little bit of context, I mentioned that Deliberate Discourse started with a Google Sheet where people signed up. Over the last five years, we've really formed it into a three-hour program that's based around sharing context and sharing personal stories. And we have individuals in small groups around a dinner table, which is not done by accident. The structure and the formation is just as important for us as the questions we ask to help facilitate the dialogue. We always use round tables because hierarchy and who's at the head of the table has been a way that Western and white cultures, or many cultures, quite frankly, have put like a hierarchy of who is in charge at a table. So the tables are always round to remove that hierarchy. We always make sure people are not sitting on the floor or on the ground, that people are actually sitting on seats that are literally the same height. So everyone has an equal representation at the table. That's something I think sometimes we forget to do when we're trying to bring people together. And we break bread because there's very few things that remind people of shared humanity, like eating. All of us need to eat. We all need to breathe. We all need water. We need air. And we all need it. And a good meal is something we all enjoy sharing. And so it's actually part of the structure because to your point, Kamala, one of the issues, especially in that Baldwin quote, is that the idea that we're actually not aware of the bias that we hold that considers somebody as less. That we might say, oh, I'm so progressive. Not actually. There's so much permeation of white supremacy, ideas of white superiority, the assumptions people communicate about the color of somebody's skin. And as they may be like, if you think, who's, who's a gardener? Who's a person that works as a chef? Who works in restaurants? Who's likely to clean your house? And the image that comes to your mind, how often is that somebody who looks different than you, particularly if you're a white person? And those are the kind of things that permeate the way we show up and have like unconscious assumptions and sometimes conscious assumptions about the value of others. So we really even do it just to make sure people literally come to the table to have conversations from an equal position. So we ask people, when was the first time you became aware of race? You know, for people of color and for black folks, I mean, Jailin, that was earlier for you in certain contexts because of your father and your experience. Obviously, Kamala, for you, like you, you're trying to figure out that conversation about when you have this dialogue with your son about this topic. And then just to have an awareness for people to sit around and hear, particularly for non-Black folks who are listening, that, oh, I never had this conversation. I never had to think about race until I was at a university class or when a colleague mentioned somebody or somebody asked me about a census block. And the exercise of having people share stories and listen is really what allows people to realize that their experience is different and yet so human, that allows people to start to practice those bridges. I do think that in that, people are realizing that there are things they need to proactively do. They may not be aware of the number of walls and privileges that essentially are structured for white people and against people of color. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. So I want to shift gears a little bit just because, you know, Shailen, you shared a little bit about your personal experience and sort of your journey growing up in your upbringing. I think a lot of people don't know just sort of how that shows up or how that can show up in your professional life. And I would love if you could share a little bit about what sort of your own socialization how that's impacted how you show up professionally. And specifically, you've shown up in ways throughout both corporate America and in entrepreneurial endeavors in ways that really seek to elevate and include Black voices and Black people in the work that you're doing. And I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about what that looks like and how people have received you when you're doing that kind of work. Sure. 
it's wonderful to, and I, I feel so grateful to have the opportunity to have grown up with powerful Black figures in my family who are successful. My father was an entrepreneur, whether or not he was successful or not. My parents will always debate this. And I also have my dad's sister, Margaret, who was a very successful executive um, living in Arizona. And so I had these powerful figures of people who were building their own business and doing well in the corporate world. And so it didn't limit me in terms of thinking about whether or not I thought that people of color, Black people, Latinos, Asian people could be successful in the business world and whether or not they are capable of sharing a stage in a business community as a white person. And I think it just gave me the, the good example of success in multiple ways. And so that meant that basically when I went into the work environment, I was always really looking for the best possible person. And, you know, I know we talk about this quite a lot in the tech industry, this concept of meritocracy, when the reality of meritocracy is that we view meritocracy in our own world of how we frame what success looks like and what that means. And so that means in a workplace, you know, what does it mean to be somebody who smiles too much when she shares bad news? or somebody who acts one way or the other because that's sort of culturally the way that things are expressed, but yet is wonderfully successful in all different ways, but isn't considered leadership. And so when you try to open the framework of what it means to be successful in the workplace, it opens you up to a lot of opportunities to look at candidates and to look at peers and to look at managers that lead in a different way or work in a different way for success. And that's really helped me think about what it means to build great teams, what it means to be part of a great team, to be working for a great leader. And that's shaped how I've looked at what it means when I was hiring people, both at Audible, when I was at the Amazon company, and then also at Google. That's been how I've looked at building my own company in terms of the people you bring into your company as an advisor. If I look at it this way, one of the best examples I can give is that while I was at Google, no names given, every six months sort of performance reviews that Google have. It was almost inconceivable to me at times when I would listen to how people would critique white candidates versus a black candidate when we're looking at promotion. And so what it means to have leadership qualities, which is for them, when you push and you push hard to say, can you please explain to me what you're talking about when you're talking about leadership qualities? what sort of comes up. I think that that's been sort of an interesting, painful thing to look at when I was at different companies, especially in that sort of performance review moments to understand how that unconscious bias could come up. And I think we all have moments in our lives where you have to make a decision as to, do you do the right thing? And you speak up. And potentially that puts you in jeopardy in your career because I think it's very hard for women and people of color to speak up and to Bowen's point to rock, are you rocking the boat too much? Are white people considering the fact that you're talking about this rocking the boat too much and therefore you're a troublemaker and you need to be pushed off the boat? And are you going to be okay with that for doing that? I will be quite candid. I have done it and I've been pushed off the boat but I will do it till the cows come home. Because I think at the end of the day, you have to be able to live with yourself. I think that people have to really truly understand what it means to basically strive for bringing the best people. If you really believe in meritocracy, striving for the best people to do the job, that's the way to do it, to elevate Black voices and the Black candidates because they're getting that unconscious bias that's actually permeating itself 
interpret things like performance reviews, then you have to do what's the right thing. And I think if more allies truly are allies versus performative allies actually step up and do it, then we'd all actually would move things forward. We're going to move from not just being even empathetic, but being compassionate, which is, I think, more not just sort of empathy, but actually empathy and action, right? To do what is the right thing to do. I think it makes this concept of building your own you know, business, for example, and making sure that you really have all the different voices in there to you know, sort of ensure that you don't, especially in my case, I'm building an AI to make sure that every voice is included, Black people, Hispanic people, transgender people, Asian people, white people, all have a stake in that table, a round table, hopefully, to basically share their voices so that we're building something that isn't going to leave somebody behind. And I'll just say, Chailin, to what you were saying about taking the risk to be when to do the right thing. I actually think that this is where more white allies who have a lower risk because of unconscious bias that biases white people to be viewed less poorly. Like it is actually my responsibility to be more vocal in those situations as an ally. It is my responsibility. I view it as my to be more vocal because, quite frankly, even if I get fired, which it's not out of the realm of possibility when you really push for things, especially at a really senior level. I will have an easier time getting hired because we still have a really racist society. And so it's still a lower risk for me. And I think it's an important thing for white individuals or white presenting individuals as they move into these spaces to think, what does allyship look like? And how do I actually lean in with my empathy to say, I now have a greater understanding of how my privilege allows me to move in these spaces. And then what am I willing to risk in order to take the first lean in on something? Yeah. And I think it's important to talk about this idea of performative allyship versus true allyship. And in a workplace, I talk about things like it's easy to, to sort of be a performative ally when you talk about mentorship, right? Everybody could talk at somebody and talk to somebody and you know, talk about growth. But what does it mean to be a sponsor, right? To basically bring people up with you. And to take the active step in terms of helping to grow somebody who's a subordinate or help somebody who's even a superior, I will tell you that recently I put somebody up for a board position. She is the most fabulous woman we all know. That person deserves to be at that table. But because we're not the most equal world you know, out there, she would have been overlooked if I hadn't stepped in. I would have loved to have that position, but there's... I'm yet another Asian woman at the table, but I would love to see a Black woman at the table. And so that means that maybe it's time for some of us to take a step back and for us to put other people forward because we need to hear that voice at the table. I love that you guys are already going into this. I mean, this is going to be something that we're going to unpack when we do our episode on allyship, but you guys are already pointing to it. Allyship is not, it's its not an identity. It's a set of actions. It's a consistent set of behaviors that you are embodying and actually living out. And I love that you guys called out what for some people may be the elephant in the room, which is that allyship is not always without sacrifice. In fact, allyship without sacrifice, I think, needs to be truly investigated because exactly to your point, Shailen, if we are talking about let's say we're talking about seats at a certain leadership table, unless they're going to add 20 new seats in order to get the Black and Latinx voices that have been excluded, there's going to be some people that are going to have to get up from the table. And that usually is where most people's commitment to allyship sort of lives and dies. 
right? It's like, that's, that's the moment of what are you really willing to give up? And I do think that if you start with this foundation of going through the levels of first becoming aware, then really engaging in some of the emotions behind it, the sympathy and the empathy, moving into reflection and then taking action, it can start to help to give you the right type of foundation and the right type of motivation to make sure that as you're entering into allyship, you are doing it in a way that is truly committed to that outcome happening and truly willing to actually put things on the line to actually drive that. And when you were talking about how this can show up even in people's careers, how unconscious bias can show up in ways and and you need a voice in the room that can speak up, I read really recently that several social science experiments have showed that power and privilege actually can make it harder for people to access empathy for people that are different than them. And I think we kind of know this implicitly, but I just want to let people know that this actually was studied this can be a real blocker. And when we're talking about corporate spaces, especially if we're talking about leadership, we're talking about a predominantly white, mostly male set of leaders and managers who have had either grown up with or have accumulated through their rise in professional spaces, some measures of power and privilege. So I'm curious if you guys have seen examples of how power and privilege can be blockers to people really accessing empathy? And what do you think are the ways that people who have some measure of power and privilege can push themselves to really, to push against that tendency to therefore not see the humanity in others who are different than them? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I the best example I could give is around things like funding, right? This is sort of where, you know, if we talk about the world today, we all talked about, horrible men out there touching women and how horrible women get treated in the world and so forth, and especially in the business world. If you look at venture capital specifically, we literally, as women, get 2.2% of all venture funding today. And that is really inclusive of basically white women. And so if you actually eliminate white women from this particular equation, it's way less than that for any woman of color, Black women, Latinas, and Asian women, period. And so this is sort of where I think it's fascinating when we talk about power and empathy, which is that when you, like, where there is venture capital, sort of like venture capitalists sitting in the VC market, it's typically white women, right? And nobody will deny the fact that I think these white women have worked their asses off to be in the positions that they have gotten to. I think that you cannot be a VC without actually having clawed your way in. And then as a woman, it's doubly hard. That empathy on how much harder it is for Black men and women, Indigenous men and women, Latinx, or even, and I won't speak to Asian men specifically because this is a tech industry, but Asian women, right? These are not people who have very good access to venture capital, but that empathy is very, very challenging because they've reached a pinnacle. And to say that basically, look, I need to give you sort of a hand to come up when they have been perceived themselves to have been given that hand up is very, very challenging for a lot of white women funders. And I'm very sympathetic because I think that they have worked really hard. But I also think that when we talk about systematic racism, it is probably a little bit easier for white women to actually have that access to that role. And so the question is, do they have enough empathy and, you know, in the position of power to basically reach a hand 
to help people of color into the vaunted sort of halls of being a venture capitalist or actually fund the startups that are being created by people of color. And I think that's a very big challenge that we're seeing today, right? Because you can't, the intersectionality issue actually also comes up as well, which is, are you fulfilling issues of diversity by adding more women versus adding more people of color? And it's both. (laughs) Such a good point, because I personally get very nervous and uncomfortable when someone's definition of diversity is inclusive of both gender and race. It's so pernicious because, I mean, we got to start from the premise of women are 50% of the population. So that alone, it's like we need to really disambiguate what are we talking about here. And we know this, that when there are any versions of quote unquote affirmative action type programs, they tend to disproportionately benefit white women before they really start to benefit and elevate people of color. And so I think that there are many companies that sort of hide behind the success that they've had, limited though it may be, with elevating women in their company as sort of the standard bearers for you know how well they're doing on diversity. It's very intentional in many ways because they understand how math works and the math looks better if they can talk about what they're doing for women and people of color which also tends to sort of like women can be also people of color. There's like intersectionality there. But Faye, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how can someone who wants to cultivate that empathy, maybe they are aware that it may be lacking given where they sit in society, how can they cultivate and access that? Yeah, I think what everything that Shailen said is 100% true. I'm thinking about a couple managers that I've had. I've also worked in some big companies. and. If I had a magic wand and I could take a skill that I've encouraged people to practice a deliberate discourse and bring it into the workplace, I would encourage people who are particularly in those places where they have the decision-making power, they could listen to you or not, to actually pause when they are challenged or hearing a perspective that is different. I've had a couple of times recently where I've raised something like, hey, I actually think that this is unfair. I think that there might be some racial bias here, example. And sometimes I get a response like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, or that's not your job, or that's in a different department, or why are you worrying about that? And I think if we are really committed to being good leaders, and I think that that is one way we can speak to desires people have about themselves, right? So like, if you really want to be a good leader, if you want to be a leader for this next century, do you want to see the, especially for folks who already have the power and the privilege, this may, a lot of these being white men, if they really want to succeed, a good skill to learn would be paying attention to the signals that you're getting from people when they do raise the topic. So one of the things we practice at the dinner is actually active listening. And if you have a tendency to not ask a follow-up question or to jump in with adding value, I'm guilty of this myself half the time, it's actually to pause and to say, oh, actually, can you tell me more? Or can you tell me a little bit more about what you're seeing there? Or do you have examples? Or are there people whose experiences that you can refer to Because it also gives people an opportunity who are stepping forward to be brave, to call out an injustice or call out an issue, to speak to a lot of the data and the research that is often readily available within these companies, work done by people of color, work done by allies to say, hey, here are these biased research, but the folks that maybe aren't always listening, asking that follow-up question and just practicing that. So even if you don't feel it, practice the asking of the question to deepen your understanding that might help you understand. And that's what we call bridging. Essentially, if you're able to find something that's sort of common and what the other person's saying, it might help you better understand how to connect with them and be a better ally. I love that. 
Okay. Now I think we could probably talk for several more hours, but I want to wrap it up. So I just want to thank you guys both so much for joining us today and sharing a lot of your personal experiences and some really tangible and tactile advice that I think that people can sort of take on board and start to integrate and how they are approaching some of these discussions and how they are therefore approaching how they show up at work, how they show up with their family, how they show up with their friends and their coworkers. So thank you so much. Before we go, please let everyone know where they can find you or your work. I'll start with you, Faye. You can learn more about Deliberate Discourse at DeliberateDiscourse.com or at Deliberate Discourse on social. And if you have anything to share with me, I'm at Faye on the go. Amazing. Shailen, how can we follow your work? Sure. You can find more about my AI named Lucy at LuckyLoo.ai or on social, hello, Lucky Lou. And you can find me at on Twitter at Shailene Simmons. Amazing. All right. So next time we're going to unpack some of the limits of empathy and why empathy, though important, is just not enough if you're serious about driving change. Now, this next episode means a lot to me because I think this is a little bit of where the funnel can break for many people. Many people can find their way all the way through to empathy, but then there can be an outage in terms of what do we do after that point. So we want to talk about how to move out of the feelings space, but how to actually make those feelings into fuel to therefore take action that will actually drive systemic change, which is what we need. So till then, I want you to invest in cultivating and developing your own expertise and experience with empathy and make sure that you're sharing what you're learning both from this podcast and as you explore empathy personally with a friend in your life, a non-Black friend in your life so that you can be a model for them as well. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this has been From Woke to Work. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon. And you can follow me on social media at The Real KS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at Studio Pod. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time.